Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I am joined as always by my co-host Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing buddy? I'm doing great. This one was so much fun as always. You and I have been talking a ton because we are getting our the first show we ever started together, Spitfire, up and running again. That's going to be last Tuesday of the month at Lincoln Lodge. If you're in Chicago, please come by, check it out, say hi tell us you listened we'd love to hear from you it's so fun so excited to get back to it i know this is going to be in less than a week now from from today we get our first show back so yeah when i've been talking a lot as we set all this up and we had a fantastic episode today where we actually did not talk about spitfire for once because we had josh gondelman on who we're just huge fans of god josh this has been like this is a white whale for me i oh, I, yeah. I i kept it in i kept it in yeah. all throughout the episode <laughs> he's so nice he's oh he's just as nice as i knew he would be he's the nicest guy in comedy and like everyone wants to say they're the nicest guy in comedy but josh gondelman literally will like go on twitter and be like hey who needs to hear a genuine compliment about themselves today and give them out he's amazing he, he's the, the the best person and yeah you're right i mean i i think you and i talked about this before i i wanted to be the nicest guy in comedy i'm trying to be a nice guy and then i saw josh gondelman actually was and i was jealous it's like oh that's why he's the nicest guy josh gondelman wouldn't be jealous of that <laughs> yeah yeah if there was any chance you had of being the nicest guy in comedy josh would be like i'm really glad to hear you've gotten that reputation that's so great for you sincerely he would absolutely mean that that's so i've I've got no chance he is he's a much he's just too good Uh, so josh uh he also has one of my favorite cds here's the thing i say this and of course comedians think that you're just hyping them up i actually have listened to dance on a weeknight possibly more than any other album if not it's in top three i listen to it over and over again when i go for walks because it's it's just fantastic and it's one of those things where you dissect the joke and go like god that framing was perfect he was a writer for last week tonight he's also a writer now for uh and a producer for jesus and he has the podcast Make My Day, uh, which, as we discussed in the episode, you know, helped inspire this. Uh, it was so much fun. We also have our friend Michael on, who's done this, of course, a number of times before. He was a writer for Antisocial Skills, which you go check out as well. And we talk about sneakers. We talk about the history of shoes and sneakers today. I loved this a lot. It was a lot of I fun. I loved it. it. It's so funny to me just talking about the history, and we'll get into it. And, and this is something that I forgot to mention before, but just like talking about how the blow up of sneaker culture of Michael Jordan kind of made it what it is. The Air Jordan 3, like, elevated everything 
everything and before everyone was playing in Chuck Taylors. Right. And it's just wild to me to think that like the shoe of moody teenagers <laughs> and the aughts used to be like the shoe Magic Johnson would wear. Yeah, no, that that was it. And that was a, a dramatic turnaround that nobody expected. But now we cover the, the entire history. Uh, we go through Chuck Taylors. We go through Jordans. We go through the first shoe from 40,000 years ago because for some reason I keep doing that. <laughs> I, I want to see the first. Yeah, you just, you have a knack for just going back to the like, how far back can I go where no one would care? And you find it and you nail it. That's the spot, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, let's get into it. Let's go. We are joined today by a fantastic guest. He is the amazing podcast, Make My Day, uh, which was a big inspiration for this one. Uh, actually, we talked about it multiple times on the show. He's written for Last Week Tonight, uh, writer and producer for uh, Jesus and Marrow. He also has one of my favorite comedy albums of all time, Dancing on a Weeknight. I have listened to it literally more than any other album. Josh Gondelman, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh my gosh, thank you for such a, a warm and gracious introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. We, know we, we did listen to uh, Make My Day. We've mentioned it a lot here, and we loved that it was so positive. Thank you. We wanted to talk with comedians and be like, okay, we're going to talk about, st- obviously this this podcast about stuff we, we dislike too, but it was like, we want to we want to do something actually positive because that was that was so great. So thank you for making that and coming on. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that, me- that, that means a ton. I appreciate that. Absolutely. We also have uh, Michael here, our, our frequent uh, guest who's uh, here to, to co-host. And uh, again, as we mentioned before, has a baby now. So we haven't seen him that frequently because he has decided to prioritize a, a child over us. And we are petty jealous people so not loving it but michael thank you for coming on you're welcome yeah there we go that enthusiastic energy <laughs> love <laughs> And of course, I'm joined by Wen Powers. Wen, how are you doing? I'm fine. You know, it's just we're bringing in heavy hitters on this episode. And how how necessary am I, Andrew, yeah. truly? <laughs> no, you, you've got the uh, we're, we're doing one that's actually relevant to current society. So you've got the context there about what the kids like, you know, that hip stuff. Until we get into the history where you went so far back <laughs> that my knowledge means nothing. I did go back 40,000 years again this time. I keep doing that. <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ. <laughs> Start with a Nike air pumps and then just go forward from there there's nothing before those i know that i'm like no longer one of the young men of comedy but forty thousand is a little i mean i've got a bad hairline but it's not forty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it was a bit excessive. So, Josh, what are we talking about today? What's the positive for today? We're going to talk about sneakers. Talking about sneakers, which was such a, a cool topic and one that I know very little about because shoes do not fit me. <laughs> Wait, tell me more. Yeah, same. I, I, I didn't know this. Andrew and I bonded over this the other night. We got super wide feet. How many toes you got? No, it's, it's a very, <laughs> here's the thing. It's wide feet they make shoes for. The problem for me is that I've got size 13 shoes, also have shoes for. They are very wide at the front and then completely normal to even narrow at the back. So you're you're describing flippers to me. That's the one. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's they're smaller so they're not as obtrusive, but that's what they are. So I very rarely find shoes that actually fit and want to stay on. Surprisingly, a brand I found just tried randomly that happened to fit Levi, the jeans company, crappy shoes, but they fit me. <laughs> they make shoes? Apparently. They make denim shoes, by the way. It's their their Oh god, that's terrible. You must sweat like it's crazy. Not great. It's I didn't love them, but they fit, so I put them on 
on. <laughs> Wait, you're serious? They're really denim shoes? I mean, they've got the, at least a denim pattern. I, there's other fabric with them, but yeah. Wow. That's your like day-to-day footwear is a, is a Levi's shoe? And not anymore. I've worn them out. I need to buy a replacement. I, right now, I have essentially a moccasin <laughs> that I'm wearing. Okay. The, that's what I'm, I'm wearing out most of the time. The other brand that actually does fit me is Doc Martens, but I'm not an angsty 17-year-old, and that is, is hard to pull off as like, it's hard to complain about your bones hurting while you're wearing Doc Martens, and I'm really at the bones hurting stage of life. <laughs> sure, I feel like Doc Martens are incompatible with like osteoporosis <laughs> arthritis and stuff. I actually really like sneakers. I, I love the level of design that we get into them because it's a kind of intricacy that you, you don't see in other design because it's attention grabbing in a unique way. I've always liked just colorful socks, unique pattern socks for the same thing. It's something when you look down, you know something unique. So what are you wearing on your day to day? So that's a good question. I've been like kind of dabbling to getting a little more serious about just like sneaker stuff over the last six or so years. And I credit my buddies, Ron Funches and Yasser Lester, who I was opening for at Caroline's. And they both had great sneakers the whole weekend that we were working together. And they're, they're two of the funniest people. And they just had great sneakers. And I was like, you know what? I, I need to like get myself a nice pair that feels like not just like utilitarian, but that is a little flashier. And, and it's kind of snowballed from there. But day to day, I have a pair of Adidas Prime Knit NMDs, which were like pretty popular like five years ago. And now they just make many fewer colorways of them. It's like, a, and it, they're less of a big deal. But I have this old pair that's probably four years old and they just slide on like a sock and so I wear them when I walk my dog now even though they were like a little fancy when I got them four or five years ago but now they're my every I so I they're the the shoes that I for sure wear every day because my dog wakes up in the middle of the night to be walked and fed at like 2 a.m usually so I want a shoe that doesn't make me think too hard (laughs) so like the Adidas NMD is like my most frequently worn shoe and then let me think because like again I'm just kind of new to going out again and like having to wear shoes places other than errands in the neighborhood not everything's calling for a slip-on anymore right yeah. right 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 right. i you can't it can't just be like bathrobe and hard sole slipper walking out to the front mailbox i don't have a front mailbox yelling at the the kids to stop stealing your newspaper i don't do that but you know what i mean like i feel like i'm i'm like learning relearning to dress for the outdoors and so i would say like the shoe i reach for i've been reaching for the most frequently is a, a nike air max one or an air max 90 those are like the two that i've been wearing a lot of i've looked these up as as we're talking by the way and i mean these are these are great these are great shoes and i do need to get back into just having sneakers because they're, they're, they're comfortable they're, they do what they're supposed to do better than than other shoes you know you've got that support you've got that comfort and we'll obviously got in the history how that all came to be so i, I think my mission now that i can go back to society is to try on shoes again and and try and find a brand of sneakers that that fit me as adult. i've also considered doing the thing where you actually just get them actually made for your feet sure tailored or whatever it, it, cobbled. That, that's that's yeah, the cobbled. word i don't see yeah. Yeah, but the problem with that then is is one, I don't feel like I would feel like a good person if I did that. Like, I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, okay, but there are people starving and you had someone trace your foot. Okay, <laughs> look, but I was just going to say, for your sideshow Bob-esque feet, you're going to need, <laughs> you're going to need a cobbler. Like, that. that's okay. If they don't make shoes for you, you don't have to just suffer with whatever shoes you're given. You can actually get a nice thing for yourself and not have to compare it to 
to a starving child. Right. You don't have to wear an empty tissue box or whatever. <laughs> I, I think there are certain things. There are certain things that are so luxurious that no one should have them. Right. Like there's certain like, oh, these are uh, actually the souls are plated in gold or whatever. Right. And you're like, well, anyone who buy them, a, a trap should fall on them right. and their net worth should be seized by needy people. Yeah. But like, I do think there is a level of comfort and a level of like, especially if you have feet with specific needs, like you wear shoes every day. It's basically like having glasses. You know what I mean? Where it's like, you need this to just get through the day. So why wouldn't you, if you can afford it, spend the money to make sure that it's like, it's not making your day worse to put them on every time. Yeah, spend money on a mattress and spend money on shoes. Like if you're going to spend that much of your life in them, spend the money. Nothing else though. That just those two. Just Just those two. two. You need to be sleep nude (laughs) and shod. That's what I say. <laughs> like a horse. Basically. Sleep like a horse. Yep. If the uh, mattress is full of hay, even better. Yeah. That's right. If you can just wear your, your great shoes to bed like a horse does, then yeah. you're all set. Exactly. Classic horse behavior. You yeah. know, it's, I think there are certain things that are like such staples in your day to day that it is like, if you have it, worth it. Not, I'm not saying like everybody spend $600 <laughs> on a pair of yeah. custom glasses. I, but, but I mean, like, if you can afford it, I don't think it's a problem to have the thing that you want and that's not too excessive in that regard especially something that you use every day and everyone who sees you sees them yeah jeff bezos is building a 500 million dollar yacht you get to walk without being in pain right, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> when people say eat the rich they don't mean everyone who is not like developing debilitating ankle pain just from walking <laughs> i think that is a good point and also from from what i've heard too is you get a good pair of shoes actually cobbled they last longer in the long run you're not necessarily spending more money and of course you pay to have them fixed then as well but they're more for dress shoes getting cobbled sneakers I'm, I'm sure is a thing but i don't know how to achieve that and also we did to start this podcast with me complaining you know a you know a cobbler this doesn't surprise me for some reason of course michael knows a cobbler so let's get into the history of this a little bit because uh as you all pointed out i went back forty thousand years for no reason <laughs> except it excites me to find the first of of anything when we do history so archaeological evidence suggests the first shoes were invented in the paleolithic period around forty thousand years ago now now, it's thought they might have been used well before this. Her material used for shoes at this time was highly perishable and didn't leave much evidence. So at this point, the stuff they're using to make shoes has disintegrated over 40,000 years, as I hope to. I can't really blame them for that. So, you know, there's not much to go from. So when they, how they had to pick a time period, because there's not much actual physical evidence left behind, is from the fact that between 40,000 and 26,000 years ago, the thickness of human toes decreased. The theory being that wearing shoes resulted in less bone growth and thus shorter and thinner toes. Wait, so that's where they got the year range from? They're like, oh, these these toes are bullshit. They must have invented shoes. I mean, essentially, yes. Fantastic. <laughs> Which I would be skeptical about because I, sometimes you read something about archaeology and I feel like you just made that up. Like, <laughs> it's okay if you want to give us a reason, but you just made that up. But this one, there has been insane increase in flat-footedness since shoes got more comfortable. Like the, the rates have skyrocketed from something that used to be relatively rare to something that is in the like the majority of people. And the WikiFeed community is up in arms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
so so yeah we we know the impact that shoes can have just over this brief time period where we started figuring out you know what i would like walking on better is cushions and it's like somebody's like well yeah put it in a shoe man people don't know this but until the 1980s it was just common to be walking on broken glass that's true yeah. yeah everyone was just john mcclaning it all around yeah classic McLean. it was a good time for podiatry those guys were making billions yeah i biffed it 1992 i just looked it up until 1992 people would consistently be walking on broken glass that- yeah i did that till i was nine it was horrible yeah so yeah this is obviously uh this was something we went back to because as discussed 26,000 years ago we we had you know bare skin shoes and then eventually we introduced glass because it was the hip thing to do you know mm-hmm. you can't resist that uh, so shoes at this time would have been essentially they're they're bags of leather or other material when i sent you pictures of this no you sent me a photo he sent me a photo of an old shoe and he should have given me some kind of warning because <laughs> it just looked like the scarecrow's mask yeah. like it was just like very happy haphazardly sewn together it looked like it was the skin of an enemy that was just kind of like worn as a trophy it was horrifying And it brought out your greatest fear. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To be made into a shoe. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like with a lot of things that we have better now, they just started off as like bags of leather, right? It was like people used to drink out of bags of leather or whatever. (laughs) All helmets used to be bags of leather. I feel like until 1995, they were just like, all right, okay, we need, we have a new idea for something. We need a new function. Have you tried a leather bag? (laughs) (laughs) And thus Doc Martens were born. Yeah. (laughs) Which are more like a leather box. Yeah, yeah. as you pointed out with the bed stuffed with hay, that's what they did for shoes too for insulation was you're walking with hay in your shoes. This is what was deemed to be more comfortable than the alternative. Just gravel. I was about to say, we invented this to keep your feet away from nature and we're just going to stuff it with as much nature as possible. Right. (laughs) Well, they didn't have rubber yet. Don't worry, Andrew covered rubber very thoroughly. I wasn't worried about any step in this process. (laughs) I was curious about how long we were were expected to have this podcast, but then we've covered 14,000 years pretty briskly, so I'm less worried. Yeah, we still keep this around an hour. We, we skip ahead. Once I talk enough and I feel you guys are getting bored, we just start moving on. <laughs> pretty solid strategy. Yeah, that's basically how yeah. I go through life, yeah. Yeah, there we go. So let, let's get ahead a bit more. The first, dating back to around 7,000 to 8,000 BCE, are the first actual recovered shoe. Not just evidence of shoes, but shoes themselves. And these are sagebrush bark sandals, which, you you know, fantastic. You see them every day out now, still hanging around. It's, it's great stuff. The oldest leather shoes date back to 3500 BCE, and they're made from a single piece of cowhide laced with a leather cord along seams at the front and back. Although laces, like we know them, really didn't come into play again until early 1900s. But at this point, they got to time with something. So laces it is. So as civilization developed, we saw a change in style, and the sandal became common, the thong sandal especially. And it can be found in Egyptian murals dating back to 4000 BCE, but were used by a number of civilizations using different materials, papyrus in Palm in Egypt, the Maasai in Africa used rawhide, wood in India, rice straw in China, Japan. But what's interesting was despite being used, the majority of cultures didn't see need for shoes and even rejected them. As we discussed earlier, as, as I did, uh, apparently, ancient Greeks saw them as self-indulgent, unattractive, and unnecessary. So you were just walking, they had shoes, but they're like, no, I'm not going to be fancy enough to wear shoes. Come on, guys. This was your exact argument earlier, yeah, say, Andrew. Yeah, Andrew, are you an ancient Greek and you just haven't told us? I, I I'm, I'm glad I, I relate here, despite also feeling like they made a terrible decision. This is going to help for me to get better shoes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so no shoes at this time, as Greek did, theater was a big thing. So they're primarily worn in theaters. These shoes called kathornos, which were essentially platform sandals as long as, as tall as six inches what? would be worn by the actors to increase stature in their performance. Did they have goldfish in them? <laughs> that, that was a later development. A oh, fun okay. theater fact, because you know I have to throw those in there. This is actually like a tradition that you could still see today in Marvel movies when Robert Downey Jr. has to stand next to Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they keep it going. <laughs> That's what it is. It's hearkening back. He's not 5'3". He's a thespian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's a true actor in every sense of the word, hearkening back to the ancient Greeks. And it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. I love his respect for the craft. Honestly, it's the only way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> when I know you've had a number of roles in your theater career, my favorite of yours was obviously, you know, Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors. So I was in high school, but how how do you see that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we've discussed this a number of times. So imagine this performance, suddenly Seymour with six inch platform heels. It's hard to imagine this being a better performance just by being taller. Obviously, Greek plays at the time. We've covered this as well. We, we, we know what those were like. If you don't go back and listen to that episode, it was a good one. But I imagine this is going to change performance dramatically. Oh, for sure. But, you know, you got to play for the cheap seats way in the back. So I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and way up at the top in those amphitheaters. Exactly. Absolutely. Getting up on their level. <laughs> so at other points in time, only upper classes were allowed to wear large heeled and platform shoes. And this was just to distinguish themselves from the peasantry. You want to be able to literally look down on people. And this was the goal for so long in history. But as we said, in ancient Greece, most chose to go barefoot. Their athletes competed barefoot. Their gods and heroes were duly portrayed barefoot. Alexander the Great's army marched barefoot. Rome, however, felt otherwise because clothing was a display. Uh, and it was a sign of status and power. Wearing shoes was part of being in the civilized world, though slaves and the poor were typically shoes and even forbidden from wearing shoes often. But I mean, ancient Rome was Hollywood today in terms of fashion. Ancient Rome was the constant Met Gala. You're trying weird shit out because nothing has been done before. All the stuff you're doing <laughs> can be new and exciting. I feel like if you're in an army with no shoes, like imagine landing. I've been on a beach with no shoes. Imagine, <laughs> imagine the landing on the beaches of Normandy with no shoes. It's just like, ow, 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 ow. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't keep going. Keep going. I'll catch yeah. up. Let's just put the towel here. Um, so I feel like if your whole army is not wearing shoes, that's like one, it is like a very intimidating move. But two, it makes you vulnerable to a beshooed army. <laughs> beshooed is fantastic. It did. And in fact, Rome, who were giving their, their soldiers shoes, in fact, Roman soldier shoes had riveted insoles to increase the life and comfortability. And the it, it designated officer rank. The more detailed the insignia, the higher the boot went up the leg, the higher the rank. And then they conquered Greece. So I'm not saying that was the only reason, but you know what? That was the only reason. Shoes were the entire reason. To quote the great Spike Lee as uh, Mars Blackman, it's got to be the shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, they, they were a big status symbol as well. Starting around 4 BCE, Greece did begin wearing symbolic footwear, uh, heavily decorated to show status. Courtesans wore white, green, yellow, or lemon-dyed shoes. Newly betrothed or married women uh, wore white. And because of the cost to lighten leather, paler shoes indicated higher status. Uh, and they'd often be carved with a message so it would leave an imprint on the ground. And cobbler became this notable profession around the time, with Greek cobblers actually becoming famed in the Roman Empire for their, their scale and their detail in making shoes. 
shoes. I think there's still a status to white shoes. I think, um, excuse my pronunciation if I mess up his name, but um, Hanif Adurakib, who's a really great essayist and, and cultural critic, has written about like the importance of, you know, the cultural importance of white, white sneakers. And it's like, he's, he's just an incredible writer. I wasn't going to make that connection, but the second you said it, I was just like, exactly. <laughs> like mm-hmm. white, un, unscuffed, uncreased shoes is, yeah. a, is definitely a huge status symbol. Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. No, that's a, a really good point that this is definitely something that's continued today. And I, I think obviously the, the same at the, the time, it, it shows you have the wealth to either have them cleaned or replaced constantly. And because nobody can be that careful, I imagine as quickly as I get dirty, despite being a 35 year old man, and I feel like I should be better at this by now. <laughs> but oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, still, still very much a status symbol. But that about hits the ancient world for us when you want to hit uh, Middle Ages and Industrial Revolution here. Yeah. So uh, in Middle Ages, uh, we became more skilled at making them and shoes just got a lot dumber very quickly. So in in Spain, they had braided jute soles and fabric on the upper portion and often laces tied around the ankle, which sounds like you're just going to completely just rip apart your Achilles tendon doing that, (laughs) in my opinion. Uh, And then by the 15th century, patents were made. Uh, They were made of wood and were shoes that went over your shoes and raised you above dirt and mud. Uh, They're the precursors of high heels, but were basically used as like a cowboy boot. Yeah, they were. (laughs) And it it was this, again, an aspect of of status, but also the streets were disgusting. So it's it's keeping you out of of the muck and and the filth. And again, higher than the peasantry who who don't even have, you know, regular shoes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the lower classes during this time were still barefoot. And then the Krakows came next, uh, which were just shoes with a super long point. So long, it was often supported by a whalebone tied to the knee to keep the point from getting in the way while walking. So this is the, the, the part in history where we start going backwards with shoes where they're now making it worse to walk. These could be up to half a meter long, the point what? beyond the actual foot. Why? I, I have no idea. It, it was a terrible decision other than the longer it was, the uh, more impressive you were. So people did it. So they were just out there making Andrew-like shoes for regular people. <laughs> <laughs> were they like ready to ski on a moment's notice? Was this comes to the invention of the ski? We did an ice skate episode and yeah, pretty similar. Just skiing through the mud on those fucking things. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, you can find pictures and obviously the pointed toe shoes and eventually the pointed toe shoes became the curled shoes because they still wanted to show how long they were, but realized, well, this is dumb. They're getting in the way. What if we just roll them up a bit? It's very elven. Yeah, I was about to say, that's what elves wear. That's Howie, the the elf that wants to be a dentist. That's his kind of footwear. Right. I think this is how elves became extinct. They just fucking kicked each other in the shins till they all died. Yeah, or just tripping over their own curly pointed toed shoes. Pretty much. Yeah. Self-fulfilled prophecy. I love when when you get to a part of history where it is so significant that it didn't affect anything, but it still ended up in the history books and you realize how incredibly dumb dumb it is. And it's not like it's dumber than stuff we're doing now, necessarily. It's just different. It's a different kind of dumb, a different flavor of dumb. We're used to our present day dumb. There's some, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, some of it doesn't seem dumb because, like, ah, this is what we do. But, like, yeah, it's just a variety of bad fashion, bad idea. Can you imagine trying to fit on a subway with those shoes? How would that work? We're in Chicago (laughs) and New York City. I can't even imagine getting on either train with those fucking things. No, that was a a common problem in uh, 15th century Spain, was, uh, you know, getting (laughs) on the subway. That's what I would think. 
tanks. The real Spanish Inquisition was, uh, what are those? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking incredible work. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so in 16th century, royals like Mary I or those of high standing like Catherine Medici uh, wore high-heeled shoes to make them look taller while they stood on actual high platforms. Like that's how tall they wanted to come across. These are the first Jews without platforms. These are actual heels instead of the platform. Oh, without the actual platform. See, this is why I should never... Uh... <laughs> That's a good That's lesson. That's a lesson here. Yeah. A lesson Don't I learned over when, and just, over again. Just forget it all. Don't worry about I it. I can't wait for your literacy episode. <laughs> yeah. So high-heeled shoes uh, to make them look taller without the actual height of platforms. And men saw this increased appearance of women's power and they couldn't leave it alone. So in 1580, they were wearing high heels as well. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I like an increasingly till it's just stilts, right? Till it's like <laughs> social status is like an arms race or a legs race, if you will. <laughs> it, it was that they got tall and also became a thing where was suddenly just men were wearing this. In fact, men's legs became uh, a symbol of attraction uh, as, as women's are, are today, as we made women cover their legs and men started wearing high heels and showing their legs more. And suddenly this became a mark of beauty for men. In fact, in 17th century France, heels were exclusively worn by aristocrats and Louis the 14th outlawed anybody from wearing red high heels except for himself and his royal court. What a bitch! <laughs> I know, wow. Louis. Drama. Way, not surprisingly, anyone want to guess when uh, high heels went out of style in France? Around this time, when people couldn't put on their favorite red pair. I mean, it was right after everyone was beheaded in the revolution. <laughs> after that, they were like, you know what? Maybe we don't. Maybe we don't need to show how much better we are than everybody else. <laughs> maybe we can just keep this on the down low a little bit. So, uh, yeah, when high heels kind of went out, you also get the more modern shoe with a sewn-on sole that was devised around this time period. But also, shoes were made the same for each foot. Uh, as this developed. When you had individual cobblers working, it would shape them a bit. But as the process became more standardized, it became what they called straights. It was, you have two shoes, they're exactly the same. So it was still a handicraft, but by the end of the 19th century, the process had been almost completely mechanized with production occurring in large factories. And while most all stages had been mechanized by the 1880s, one stage lasting, uh, which was a shaping and attaching the body of the shoe to the sole, had to be done by hand. And this was one that nobody could figure out. They couldn't figure out how to get a machine to do this. Uh, at this point, they also, the, the people, the, the lasters were able to strike and hold kind of this industry in hostage because no, nothing could do their job. And since then, problematically, it's got, you know, that that's become, it seems like there there's still, it's like, well, we've, we've uh, figured out the solution, which is we have children do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Jan Ernst Matzliger. Who uh. developed a solution with the, the lasting machine. <laughs> it was a significant contribution. It meant that instead of 50 shoes per day, up to 700 could be produced. And it, it was unfortunate in that it was, it, it led to some strike busting. But Jan was a black immigrant from Suriname, uh, then Dutch Guiana, whose mother was a slave. So despite significant contributions to the field and basically working himself to death to invent this and his other patents, he would skip meals he would and sleep to work on his inventions. And eventually he got tuberculosis and, and died. Uh, and he's largely forgotten in history books, but his his contribution to shoemaking was significant and it, it led to a process that is is now you know can be repeated today with mass production of shoes he might be forgotten in the history books but not by this podcast no, we <laughs> some people which some people would call the history books for your ears <laughs> i'm gonna write an apple review that says that tonight yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank god for podcasts <laughs> so, so let's finish up the 19th century here so we can just go on to actual experience here 1899 the rubber heel was patented for boots and shoes 1910 a process 
process for gluing rather than stitching soles was created and the modern shoe was born. And so let, let's go back to sneakers here. We have some of their creation, but what was your experience when you were a kid? I remember Air Jordan coming out and the massive significance of this, of, of everyone just desperate to, to get them, to show off they had them. I think my parents got me them. I don't think I got the Air Jordans. I got I got like some good Nikes once. They always got good shoes, but they wanted shoes that were good because they were actual good shoes. You got the Steve Kerr's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Air E-Wings, the Floor Jordans. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was very much like, look, we'll, we'll spend money to make you comfortable. We are not going to spend money to give you shoes so you can say you have these shoes. Did you guys ever get them? I did. I pumped them up too much and broke them in like three months. Yeah. I constantly <laughs> pumped that basketball and I, I broke them. Oh, those were the Reeboks, right? The Reebok Omnipumps? Those were the Reeboks, yeah. The ones with the, but the, but the I thought they were Jordans now, weren't they? Or am I thinking of- I don't think the Jordans ever had the pump. Oh, well, okay. No. Then I'm thinking of the Reebok. Yeah, I don't, yeah. They, they, I don't think the Jordans ever got the pump. I never got Jordans. I, I did not get interested in any kind of fashion really until two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, <laughs> I started like buying clothes that fit and stuff like that. So I'm still like new to this whole thing, but I did have friends that uh, had, had Jordans. And I mean, we'll probably get into the history of the Jordans in a little bit, but Jordans were not a big deal for their first two iterations, in my opinion. Josh, you probably know more, correct? At the time, I think some of them became a bigger deal, but like now, there's like a, a, a similar but different cultural resonance now, right? And I think like after the second Air Jordan model, Michael Jordan was going to leave Nike and they paired him with a designer that he hadn't worked with before, Tinker Hatfield, who designed the Jordan 3, which is one of the iconic ones. He also did the Air Max, the original Air Max, the Nike Hirachi, I believe. He's like designed so many iconic Nike silhouette, but it became, I don't remember exactly when, it, but it was such a big cultural day. I feel like there were all these kind of like fear-mongering crime stories on local news about like people getting like jumped for sneakers, which like, not that it didn't ever happen, but it felt like that was kind of like a way the news was trying to scare people about like black culture, I think, uh, by being like, e even their shoes are scary for you, uh, white people. But like, yeah, but I think like it became kind of an increasing thing as Michael Jordan ascended and right like because he I'm trying to think the Jordan six or seven he wore in Barcelona it's either the six or seven he wore when he won the first championship which was also right like and the I don't know I'm just rambling but like there there are since like kind of retrofitted and and retro these models based on like what he was wearing at important moments in his career and like they retro Nike retros those Jordan or the Jordan brand now retros those shoes a lot yeah and I, I remember when when Hatfield kind of took over the the big thing with Hatfield though is he wasn't really a clothing designer he was an architect and he he was the one who actually kind of understood like what people want is the silhouette but like, you could just put this show it against like a you could backlight it pretty much and you know what shoe it is and that was huge there was so much I mean like there were so many things that he did that you now see and you're like oh yeah this shoe like that he was the one I believe that exposed the air bubble on the air max right like you think of that as being like that that kind of being a classic look for a sneaker but before he was like oh we want to have a cutout in the sole to show that his body were like, no, people will think it's flimsy if they see this like bubble. They want to see like a big sturdy sole, which is, you know, all these little decisions that they that have, were made years ago and are now like the pattern for how we think about sneaker design. Yeah, I mean, the, the 80s developed what all of this, I mean, the, what we, we see as a standard today was very much out of this culture. I think it was because the, the 80s were a mark when it, it really did become not just a social aspect, but a cultural aspect. These had more than a, a physical purpose now. These were symbol and, and status as they were a while ago, but also they represented group. <laughs> you know, they, they show 
showed what you were interested in, what you what you believed in. Representation of brand was significant now. Yeah, I mean, there and and until Michael Jordan kind of put Nike on the map as like a sneaker powerhouse, Converse was really big in basketball. Still, I mean, like you can picture the Chuck Taylors, which like it seems miserable to actually play a sport in those. But then there were like the Converse weapon, I believe that was one of the models that was like Larry Bird wore Converse and Magic Johnson wore Converse, and they would be in ads together, which is like they're the two you know long term rivals since college and uh, Celtics Lakers a huge basketball rivalry and, and just to have like that that like what a huge you know that's like it, it you know it's LeBron James and Steph Curry wearing the same shoe in commercials together it's just like and this is like back when kind of that brand loyalty and, and like saturation of the market like performance shoes for consumer wear was becoming a thing yeah this this was a very interesting time and let, let's jump back a minute and hit some of the history of sneakers because I think we're going to get into where it went wrong in a second and some interesting relevance here. So the very first sneakers in some form were invented by Waite Webster in 1832 when he received a patent for the process of fixing rubber soles to shoe. Vulcanized rubber, of course, wasn't invented until 1839. So this was basically just a thin piece of rubber with canvas attached to the top. And because it wasn't vulcanized, this was meaning in the winter, it would get brittle and crack. And in the summer, it would get hot and stick to both the ground and your foot. These were terrible. But the first sneakers. So after vulcanization, they began to get a bit more popular for sports, but they're more, more niche. Uh, in the 1870s, canvas shoes served with bands of rubber called plimsolls were worn, named because the rubber reminded people of the plimsoll lines on ship used to measure their loads. Also, if water got above that line, you would get wet. What a weird thing that everyone were just like, oh, that's like plimsolls, you know, the rubber the thing on boats. Like, right. I would never have had that as a reference. Just pull out was just like, you know what this shoe reminds me of? Uh, especially because it's a line. Like when you think of lines, the first thing society thought of at this point, like, oh, the line on a ship. Right. <laughs> Boat lines. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> Classic lines. And but un until the early 1900s, most rubber shoes were made by tire and rubber companies, not shoe companies. Keds, a leading brand at the time, and the kind my mother still wears. Uh, were made in 1892 by the U.S. rubber company. The term sneakers is often attributed to American advertising agent Henry Nelson McKinney in 1917 because this rubber sole made wear stealthy. But if you look back, you can find the word in use uh, referring to shoes as early as 1887 in an article from the Boston Journal. And the reason this is relevant is because it starts to be when shoes are painted with the wearer. At this point, those you, you could you know find references to those wearing them being criminals, <laughs> being someone that needed to sneak for some reason. And, and they were kind of maligned from the beginning because of this. And this was the, the same year that sneakers began to be mass produced. Marquee Converse made the first shoe just for basketball. Converse All-Stars when Chuck Taylor endorsed them. They were, of course, became the Chuck Taylor All-Stars. And in 1924, sneakers gained international appeal when German Adi Dassler created the sneaker. He eventually named it for himself, Adidas. Uh, it was originally the Dassler Brothers Shoe Factory, but when they split angrily and had, had a huge rivalry. Into Adidas and Puma, right? Exactly, yeah. The 1949 split and these two brothers just hating each other led to these two massive shoe companies and incredible success. So that's a lesson for you kids. You know, anger will get it done. Yeah, just spite your sibling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fight your brother. Yeah, I wish I had a brother. I <laughs> love any any story of like spite business. Like there are two in Somerville, Massachusetts where I lived and near where I used to live for a long time, but I lived down the street for a while. There are these two brunch restaurants that are both very good and they're very similar because I believe like the chef from one left and opened another brunch restaurant 
restaurant like three doors down and so they have like compete they're just like they're 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 a rivalry they're rival brunch restaurants and i just like love anytime like spite innovates business it's not because it's not capitalism it's personal right like i i do want to be successful but mostly so that guy hates that i'm successful. right it's not the idea of like oh i'm innovating so i can make more money it's like i'm innovating to rub your face in it and i think that that's really what we should be aspiring to it's really beautiful and i'm actually halfway through now mapping out my two rival brunch spot pilot right now because yeah. this is gonna sell baby <laughs> everyone understands story. it yeah yeah no and I, I think because we all have absolutely done things for spite just typically not as well as the Dossler brothers did that's it they're just better at spite than we are i've never founded puma out of spite it's a weird comparison when you're like okay remember that time you really hated someone and you left a kind of a passive aggressive voicemail that's like my level of accomplishment it's like oh i could have founded a shoe company you left a party that you wanted to be at because you didn't you know and it's right. like yeah this is this is a next level spite imagine leaving that party and someone handing you like 80 million dollars and that's exactly yeah. how yeah. this would feel yeah. i made the right choice yeah. <laughs> so long suckers well, and these actually became the most popular athletic shoe in the world after this after adi uh convinced jesse owens to wear his spike shoes in the 1936 olympics and owens won four gold medals uh, and it was actually a, a unique design the spikes at the time were heavy metal which were you know weighing runners down and uh adi develops this with a rubber design this feels like all over again stuff we've been talking about right of like there were just people were just using materials where you're like well this i guess this is what they had at the time yeah. but- <laughs> right <laughs> i mean yeah th- that that was it it was interesting that these were actually a, a clever design because they're, they're still figuring it out it's like they've rubber is they, they've got rubber now but they don't really know what to do with it so it's like okay could rubber be used in place of metal and turns out yes which <laughs> is a weird design <laughs> but this was a major event for enhancing the political role of sneakers because owen's win was in the olympics that hitler had set up to spotlight germany and uh you know the aryan race superiority in a german product and wh- whether or not it was his intent it could be seen as a bit of a statement of hitler's inability to stop him and of course owens in general was big on on his statements and coming to these olympics in the first place and wanted to win this and then doing so because sneakers have had a large political role throughout history uh, as we said initially being maligned as a shoe for delinquents and burglars and advancements in shoes in general often happen in response to politics the automated process producing shoes was improved when soldiers needed them during the napoleonic war then again during the crimean wars and actually late 1800s they developed further when britain just said oh, okay we're just going to give these to all our soldiers and that was when they again kicked up automation so after world war one there was this increase in interest in physical culture often tied to nationalism and eugenics where countries were encouraging their citizens to exercise not just to get fit but to prepare for the next war and mass exercise rallies were features of fascist life in Germany, Italy, and Japan, of which sneakers were, of course, a part. And then on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, in World War II, when the U.S. government rationed rubber, sneakers were exempt due to widespread protests because they had seen come to be seen as part of the American identity. And removal of sneakers when we all need to be rooting for America, and they're like, well, we could be using the rubber in war, and they're like, but where we need it for shoes. And, and they agreed. They're like, you know what? This is part of the culture. You need sneakers. And that, I thought that was fascinating that this is coming at it from two opposite sides of the spectrum but they really had a strong political message throughout history that's just insanely cool to hear i like how like on in this corner there's like fascist workout classes in the park that you have to attend for eugenics reasons and then over here in america we're just like fuck you i like my shoes and they're like okay yeah yeah, yeah. sorry sorry (laughs) we we take it back we take it back you can't 
can't tell me not to wear Keds, the government. (laughs) That would be like rationing apples when I need it for pie. (laughs) Or re-hour blocks of time where nothing happens when I need that for baseball. (laughs) Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. (laughs) (laughs) So this was the level of Americanness seen in shoes. And then you even get them in movies and they became part of the cultural archetype where celebrity athletes, rebellious teenager, were were two of of these developed, where James Dean made Chuck Taylor's a shoe for teenagers instead of just for athletes, which makes sense because they are terrible to play sports in. And in the 1968 Olympic Games, American gold and bronze medalists Tommy Smith and John Carlos removed their shoes before mounting the podium to symbolize black poverty uh, and raise their fist in a black power salute, which was, of course, one that they received a lot of backlash for. And I think was incredible that, of course, they knew they were going to get and and did it anyway. And this was interesting how it was just constantly a social mark of shoes. But moving off of that a little bit, the jogging craze led to more high-tech footwear. And this is where it starts becoming like, okay, there's a form and function as well as social need. So high-tech footwear started. There's also more color and design. They're worn by celebrities. And you would have different sneakers for different activities or different fashions and different genders. They were now marketed to women as, as, you know, different shoes for women's needs, for women's bodies. And it's, you know, it was obviously marketers taking advantage of the women's liberation movement, but it also, again, had a large cultural impact. And then while jogging overtook the suburbs, schoolyard and street basketball gained popularity in the cities, the rise of hip hop and the crossover of these cultures led to sneakers not being just used for sport, but as a symbol of cultural expression. And when the aerobics craze hit in the 80s, Nike, which is known as jogging shoes, had to come up with something to do. So they signed a basketball rookie to an endorsement deal in 1984, Michael Jordan. And this was again, the massive movie which was discussed. So I wanted to cover the layout to that because as Jordan signed to, this was again, a very cool moment for kids and for shoe collectors, but it, it had really big cultural impact because shoe deals had happened with, with athletes before, but nothing like this, nothing to the, the level of, it, it just influenced all aspects of, of culture for everyone. And it's, it's very cool to read back on it and see that like, yes, I remember wanting them so desperately when I was a kid. And now looking back and like, oh, this was, this mattered. This was 
was actually a thing <laughs> that, that mattered for society. It was the Complex put out a book of like sneaker of the year every year. I think the last 30 years, maybe like 20. Uh, no, it must be more than 30 years. So like 85 or 82 through maybe it's 81 through 2001. Maybe it's 40 years. But anyway, and it's just like from the Jordan one onward, it's just like Nike was such a force in the industry. And yeah, it's a really interesting book. I, I recommend it. I, th- I think it's like each chapter is like probably three to five pages about a different shoe. And then you hear about you read about some of the like runners up by their, you know, what whoever chose for for complex. I would definitely love to check that out. Going through the history here, you know, I found some pictures, but it was it was more the facts that I, I needed for mm-hmm. this. But then you start seeing the design element and these a lot of these are are clever and elegant and beautiful. By the way, I know you have a bit of a collection. Yeah. So I see yours posted on show days for uh, Jesus and Mero. Oh yeah, for Jesus and Mero. And my favorites have been your Dunkin' Donuts shoes. Oh yeah. So I have this pair of Saucony. It's a Dunkin' Donuts collaboration with Saucony that they did for a couple of years, different models for the Boston Marathon because it's like real New England stuff. Right. And so, yeah, so they're very Dunkin' Donuts branded. They did them for a couple of years and they're like a little, I they're super comfortable, but they're like a little too Dunkin'-y to wear most <laughs> of the time because it's the color, it's the color scheme, which I actually really like the pink, the Dunkin' Donuts pink and orange. And I am a Dunkin' Donuts fan, but it like has the, you know, Dunkin' Donuts like printed across the upper of the shoe. It's just like a lot, you know, right. I don't think they would make a great like everyday shoe, but they're so comfortable. And I'm like my friend who did some PR stuff for Saucony hooked me up when when they dropped because I could like you just couldn't get them. They they got bought up fast. That's fantastic. So you talked about your everyday shoes, too. Do you have a favorite in your collection? Gosh, so I have this pair. I mentioned the Air Max ones and I have a pair of Air Max ones that I had custom designed like the colors. You can do that on, on Nike's website. And I got them to match my book cover when my book came out in 2019. And I got a pair for me for my agent who worked, you know, worked with me on this book from beginning through the launch. And then my editor, my agent, Noah, my editor, Stephanie. And so we all have this matching pair of Air Maxes. And I just wore them the other day for a show as a show day shoe. They're pink and black and white and gray. And and my editor, I put them in my Instagram stories and my editor left a little comment. I was like, oh, I'm oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I love that so really nice. much. And I, um, I, I like really, I think that is one of the kinds of things where like, I think when you read a lot about sneaker design, you hear a lot about like the storytelling of it, quote unquote, like the story that's told by the colorway and by the elements of the the shape and the silhouette. And I think that is like, I'm kind of a sucker for it. But also, again, it's a piece of clothing you could wear every day. And so to have that attachment of like, oh, I did this for my book and or I bought this as a gift for someone and it reminiscent of this colorway because of this book that we all worked on together. And I think like that is kind of a special and exciting thing. You know, sometimes it's a little hokey, but like in this case, I think I feel like really proud of it. And I always think about the other people who have those shoes when I wear them, the two other people. And and I think about like how proud I was to to launch that book. And, you know, it was really, yeah, I really love them. That's fantastic. We should talk about the book too. Nice try. Oh, sure. Which, I mean, that was so cool. <laughs> that, that was so great. Thank uh, you. Can you tell us a bit about this book, why you decided to do this? Uh, yeah. And again, it was one that I just loved, the kindness in it. Thank uh, you. It was great. I, so I had written, uh, co-written a book in 2015, 2014 with my friend Joe Berkowitz. And 
it it was like fun, but it was kind of like a humor, like a capital H humor book, like that you'd see on a shelf. It was more like a gift book, and it, it was really great experience. And and Joe is great and has written great books since then, really wonderful books. But I was excited to like, and Joe had already written his second book, Away with Words, which is about pun competition. <laughs> so I was like, I would like to write another book, but I just like had an extra appreciation for how much endurance the process requires in terms of like focus on this project from inception to through the launch and like promotion and stuff and how much you have to take on as an author who's not like a famous famous person right at all and so I kind of waited till I had this idea that I was like oh I would like to sit with this for a couple of years you know through from the writing through putting it out and the premise is basically it's an essay collection you know funny personal essays and the kind of idea behind it is like nice try is something you only say when things go wrong right you're never yeah. like right. hey nice try you married the person of your dreams right <laughs> it's always like hey nice try but they ended up with someone else <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think there's kind of like a it, I tried to be kind of self-aware about like being like a very sweet nice kid and trying to grow into like a good thoughtful helpful person and so that was kind of the driving force behind these essays like attempts to be nice or being nice and when that's not always the right you know when, when it's not always like when nice isn't the same as good and, and and when it is and that's kind of like the tension that that informed a lot of the essays it was really fun I'm like really glad I got to do it and I'm really proud of it. It's a great book. I still love my copy. Thank you. Absolutely. Hopefully when you come back to Chicago, I can get you to autograph mine. Yeah. And there's only three sets of sneakers based on this book in existence. Right. <laughs> I, yeah, I have one of three. I feel very good about it. That's, I lo- I'm, I'm actually sitting here trying to think of like, what are colors significant to me and my wife? Because this is a great gift idea that I'm like, I need to steal it. <laughs> okay, so this is great. My wife for our fourth wedding anniversary, which was last month, got me a pair of custom vans with the, like, uh, they're blue, but they're patterned like the side paneling on the upper is patterned with oranges and lemons because fruit the fourth anniversary is the fruit anniversary and so that's really think, clever yeah <laughs> and I think that is like it's the kind of thing where I think you don't have to be super into like sneaker culture to like dabble in this way you know what I mean I think like I maybe spend too much time like looking at and thinking about and spending too much money on sneakers but I think there are like ways to kind of no pun intended like dip your toes in yeah. in a way that's fun and exciting and isn't just like oh what do they have at DSW or whatever you know what I mean like and again no problem if that's if it's not something you care about not something think about or not something you can afford to dabble in in a, in a bigger way but I do think it's you know not everybody at all times has like the extra money to do this but like if it's an occasion that you're getting a, a nice gift for someone it can be like a fun way to really think about you know your relationship to someone or what someone likes there, there's just so many options that are out there and I, I think it's like a very fun way to kind of like express fashion and express like personal taste this is not a way I've considered shoes at all. And I love this. I, I want to, especially because again, my started this so wrong on the idea of custom shoes, the idea of customization being not just for the comfort, but to mark something, to, to indicate something. That's fantastic. It's something I really want to do now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. This is fantastic. I love this. We're talking about all the good things about sneakers. So I guess we should get into, I know our history is going to take a long part. We love so much. So we'll briefly get into it. Where did it go wrong? Okay. So there's lots of ways it went wrong. I'm a big problem. I'm part of the problem, I think, <laughs> is that I've kind of come late into 
like this. Okay. So, I mean, personally, I do believe I am endemic of a lot of problems. One is <laughs> that I own more sneakers than I need, more than I have feet for certain. And that is like the manufacturing of sneakers is not always ethical, especially, you know, unless you're really careful with where and who you buy from, what companies you support. A lot of it is, you know, overseas labor that underpays. I think that's a big problem that I cop to being not part of the solution. And then I think the other kind of thing about like that aside, human rights violations aside, you know, (laughs) like as monsters throughout history have said, human rights violations aside, I think the culture of it is kind of dominated now by the resale market in a lot of ways. And that makes shoes less accessible to people that want them. It kind of, I think my friend Russ Bankston, who has like an incredible collection, who is so knowledgeable, has talked a lot about and informed really my thinking of the culture of like waiting in line overnight which feels like oh that's a lot but there were the he talks about how these relationships were formed right by like you would see the same people at these events right because you cared the most and now people can get this the access it's not an issue of personal access it's like in so many ways like the same with like spotify right where you're like oh this will be so good for artists anyone can hear their music and then it's like oh yeah well they get paid fractions of a penny per play so it's like this thing the internet which feels like it would democratize people having access to sneakers instead what it meant was that like people you who program bots could buy a lot of sneakers and crowd people out of the online drops and people who are like real fans with dedication it's like a hard way to keep that edge of just being like the person who cares the most because there's no like or, or the person who's willing to spend the most time and energy on these things because you're so boxed out by the technology and by these resellers and like the resale market is when we were talking about this a little bit off mic but like such huge business between the boutiques you know where the consignment stores and like StockX, the online resale markets goat grailed all that stuff is like really you know i think on a small level if someone buys a pair of shoes and flips it that's not a huge deal but it's the volume that that happens at that is like the big problem right like if one person gets a pair of shoes that they're like oh i tried really hard to get them and now i can sell them for resale value that's one thing it's like you know it's a little like oh come on just like let someone who wants it have it the fact that that people can buy up this volume of shoes crowd out who want who became them un, unaffordable for the average person and and then selling them for profit is like a little grimy and just to throw out some numbers here uh in 2019 the sneaker market made a hundred billion dollars worldwide two billion of that in the u.s alone was resell of sneakers it's projected in 2024 to be roughly six million dollars of the sneaker market in resale and i just according to yahoo it's also could potentially get to 30 billion of the market by 2030 like that is how big this is growing up Sorry, that's an incredible number but did you say according to yahoo yeah according to yahoo finance <laughs> okay according to yahoo Sirius, who played albert einstein and young einstein <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't don't knock it they wrote the article they have sources. I didn't check them, but I believe them. I'm okay with Yahoo Finance. I just thought, like, when yeah, we are like the thought, I could go to, I, yeah, right. Like, you could have gone to Google and you thought, you know what? No, this is a Yahoo problem. Yahoo. <laughs> According to Jeeves, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> I, I'll do you one better. I thought you assumed I went to like Yahoo Answers where people were just like, <laughs> oh. I get hand stuff oh, in my so pregnant. reliable. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> They're going to shut that down, by the way, Yahoo Answers. I'm very I sad know. about that. I know. Rest That's in peace. A, a big Rest part of history being lost there. I got yeah. a lot of bad medical advice. 
buys from Yahoo. Yeah, answers. that's what I mean. That's what rest in peace to all those people. Um, yeah. The site. <laughs> but yeah, so I think there are a lot of ways that this has gone wrong over time. And there was like a brief period of it going right. I would say after the leather sack platform shoes phase yeah. <laughs> and before the present. But like it's stuff that I am like complicit in and, and wrestle with a lot. In, in addition to issues of like, am I appropriating culture or is this a culture that like I have a, a claim to access? And I think like this is stuff I really think about and wrestle with and ultimately come to self-serving conclusions about. But I thought it would be interesting to, to talk about the kind of the, where it went wrongness and my position I have within it. I think that's a fantastic way to, to look at it that, that yeah, I mean, there, there is consideration here. This is obviously was black culture uh, and is black culture, but it also has grown so much that is it appropriation or is it now just farther reaching? Right. I think that that line is really like it's good to think about that and to be cognizant of that line. And I think like there are ways to participate in culture that I think are like respectful and iterative in a way that is not exploitive. And then there are ways to participate in culture in ways that are like exploitive and uglier. And I I try to stay on the right side of that line. But I think that is it is like a real uh, legitimate thing, thing that's worth considering. It is. And in regards to the aspect of being part of the the resale culture, the problem is, as you said, there are bots now that are buying up these far faster than any person can log on to click buy when it goes on sale. So what are the options then if the bots all have them, you kind of then the resale, buying them through resale is kind of your only option if you want them, which I get furthers it, but also some things you just really want. (laughs) No, especially when it can be solved by purely, let's put a captcha on the website to make sure that, you know, humans are buying and they don't care if humans are buying it. They're, they're caring how much is there in stock and if they're gone. Right. And there's a forced scarcity and they like that their value goes up, right? Like I think if the resale market was cratering, you know, because Nike doesn't make the money on those resales, they make the money on the original run. But like the idea that these items are sought after and scarce and that when they drop a new pair of dunks on the sneakers app that people, it's like appointment retail, that that benefits them. I mean, it's just kind of like if you like art, if you want a Banksy, there's only one of a particular Banksy. It's pretty much a more mass. It's kind of like if you appreciate art, it's just a larger scale. There, There's only a certain number of these and you get to be one of the people that own them. And they are art. They're designed that way. They're they're meant to be in many ways, but it's kind of just a more accessible version of, you know, collecting art. And like art, I think the valuation can be kind of like manipulated for arbitrary reasons to the exclusion of a lot of people. Like, have you seen that movie Made You Look? The documentary, I think it was on Amazon. Another I have not. deeply troubled company. It's about this art fraud that kind of was laundered through this gallery in Manhattan and people who were spending like $8 million on a, like a fake Rothko, which is, it's like very interesting. I love to watch rich people get scammed. Uh, also, <laughs> it's a great genre. It's a great, it's a great, my favorite genre of documentary. If you spent $8 million on a Rothko, you didn't spend $8 million, right? Like uh, nobody's like, oh no, I bought this Rothko and now I can't pay rent. Uh, yeah. So right. <laughs> I didn't. I, don't. I feel like if you scam a very rich person with a fake painting, they don't get to get the money back. That's that should right. be. The <laughs> you don't go to jail. You don't go. You don't go to jail, and you keep the money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's how I feel. I like this system. Thank you. That, and I, I think just from an aspect too of like, look, you couldn't tell the difference. This was apparently good enough for you. <laughs> yeah, and they were getting them like verified. Like other right. experts would look at them and be like, pretty good. Yeah. You know, some, there was like a little. I, I don't want to spoil everything, but movie worth watching. Very fun. Like. 
I like a quick documentary. I like a documentary that where like the the quotient of human misery is very low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody is like immiserated by spending too much money on art that was fraudulent. Like, <laughs> right. oh, that's what dipped me below the poverty line was spending eight million dollars. <laughs> right. If only I hadn't spent that eight million dollars. <laughs> I had eight million and twenty five dollars in my bank account. What was wrong with me? And it's like what what put me over the edge? Was it that I got two Chipotle burritos upgraded to guac or <laughs> was it that eight million dollars I spent on a Rothko? And I'm going to hang out of the underpass there in which I live now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it is absolutely fair to talk about shoes in this context, too, that that they are art. They are these limited editions. I, I think that covers the history, what we love about it, where it went wrong, which means that now brings us to In Their Defense, where we have to defend resale culture. Josh, any thoughts? Sure. Yeah, it's a way like that an, an asshole like me with a couple of extra bucks and no time to spend overnight uh, waiting on the curb <laughs> in front of Nike Town or the Supreme Store or whatever can get a nice pair shoes. I think it is a burgeoning industry that kind of takes some of the earning power away from these big companies and puts it in the hands of enterprising individuals who granted are doing very little and the world would be better if they weren't doing this. Um, I think, let me think of another way. I, again, I think the best defense of it is if it is the kind of thing where if a couple people did it a little, it would be fine. Like so much. I, I think like I said, kind of tongue in cheek about something earlier, like, oh, about rivals, that it's not capitalism that drives innovation. It is spite. And I think right. this is the opposite of innovation driven through just capitalism, right? The idea that like, like it can't be one person waiting in line at this premium store for wonder of cars that one person somewhere else couldn't be there and will pay a premium for. It's the idea that like to scale that is the is the big problem, right? So I think it is like the kind of behavior, like I think there, there's that rubric of behavior, like would it be okay if everyone did it? Would it be okay if everyone littered? Would it be okay if everyone XYZ? But I think in this case, it's like the idea of like someone selling a pair of shoes to someone else is not the problem. It is the fact that like it has become this kind of cottage industry of people gaming the system to drive up prices. And so like the defense is at its core, it's just someone providing a service for another person. But because of capitalism, can't have nice things yeah. unless you're willing to pay way over retail for those nice things i <laughs> i think that's a very good point and i love it when it comes back to capitalism ruined it and i think my inner defense of it is just what do you want us to do you guys you made a product based on being valuable because there aren't many of them when you made more of them people stopped wanting them <laughs> this exists only because people want them because they can't have them so having them and selling them seems very reasonable obviously there are better ways to do it obviously has been ruined, but I don't have an alternative beyond, hey guys, be cool. That's the solution. I mean, I also do think that there are a couple of things like, like one said, a captcha, you know, just the idea of like making the online systems less gameable and it is okay. Like flooding the market a little bit more is like fine. Like Nike is going to be fine if every pair of dunks that they drop does not sell out instantly. Thanks to robot consumers. Right. <laughs> like they'll be fine. Let's 
said, they're going to sell out either way to, you know, real claims putting the time in. So of course, there's a better way to do it. They're, they're building off the hype. The hype is, is how one of they are. They can't get it. Those shoes are going to sell out either way is getting them to go buy regular Nikes because they couldn't buy these where they're, they're making so much money. But yeah, I mean, of, of course, it's it's look, somebody ruined it. Somebody ruined it because they can have money uh, from it. It's not limited to sneakers either. I mean, see, we could do another episode on, on concert tickets, event tickets. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm my no lord. I've, I've, I've paid up the wazoo a couple times for tickets that I wish I hadn't. Even retail for concert tickets, right? Like the, yeah. even the Ticketmaster fee is, is like, wait a minute. So you charge me 20% oh, God, yeah. on top of the listed price for the, the service of having a website? Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I just spent uh, $120 on two $40 tickets the other day. Ooh. It's just Ooh. ridiculous. It's another ticket yeah. in just fees. Service fee of a $24.95. Like, really? So I can click a button on your website? I, I can't. I have to imagine there's something similar to this in, in the in the, in the shoe business. Michael, you had the privilege of being able to click that button on a very well-designed website. And that right. is worth the 20% upgrade. Oh, God. Fuck Ticketmaster. <laughs> Andrew, how about you? What is your defense of resale culture? No, that was my defense. My defense was what else are we supposed to do, guys? That's more a difference than defense. It's a good... It's, it's a good it's a good argument. I'll I'll start my defense with a with a rambling story. Uh, when I was a child, I got a holographic Charizard naturally. I opened the packet and I pulled out a holographic Charizard, and I thought like I am on top of the world. And my older brother came up to me and said, "Hey, I have eight pony toss <laughs> that I can give you in exchange for that one Charizard." And in my head, I was like, "That's." eight cards to one, this is a good <laughs> idea. The cards all together, you know, just if you break them down, they were made for, for the same amount of money. There's actually more money just in materials of the eight ponytails than the Charizard. We assigned <laughs> it the value in scarcity and the fact that like you wanted it and that's what it was worth to you. To me, a Charizard was worth eight ponytails. To him, he sold it for $200. Uh, I was <laughs> I was ripped off. I was, I was the victim of a reseller at this point. However, However, by my own brother. However, if you have the opportunity to have this little side hustle that you're going and make the money off of people who are willing to way overpay for things, like Josh said, if it's small scale like that, I'm fine with people who have way too much money getting tricked into buying an $8 million painting. Uh, if it's done on the large scale, then it becomes a, a society kind of issue where you're intentionally pricing out people who can't afford it. But if you just want to take advantage of people who want dumb status symbols, uh, or eight pony tall Pokemon cards, go for it. And that's my defense. <laughs> I, I think just uh, if we want to get back at your brother here, apparently a holographic Charizard Pokemon card sold for more than $300,000. So your brother got ripped off. This had to have been a second edition card that I found because don't tell me that there could have been that kind of money in my family. <laughs> Is it just it's worth more now? It was worth $200 then and three hundred grand now because it's old? Should have read the article first. Someone paid $375,000 for an unopened box full of Pokemon cards. Oh, that turned out to be fake. Okay, <laughs> Pokemon cards. Documentary. Documentary. Come on. Yeah. We go. That's that <laughs> stuff. No, so they did buy $311,800 for the first edition Shadowless Charizard with a PSA 10 gem mint rating. I don't even know what that uh, is. Shadowless. So I don't, but apparently when, if you had the shadow one, well, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, the shadow, that that's, it's, if light hits it and it, yeah, then that's nothing. That, wow. <laughs> Imagine uh, an, uh, a, a new movie, uh, Uncut Gems, but instead of diamonds, it's fucking Pokemon cards. I'd watch the hell out of that. 
that. <laughs> we can do a diamond episode too. That market is entirely there because diamonds are hoarded. Fully fabricated. You could do a series on that. Oh, they could. And that's hardly the worst part. But but Michael, what do you have for us in their defense? I am indifferent. I'm kind of with Josh. I mean, I feel like something is worth that much because some idiot's going to pay it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be worth that much. Uh, you know, Cubs World Series tickets were going for tens of thousands of dollars resale because people were going to buy them. If nobody was going to buy them at $10,000, they wouldn't be worth $10,000 resale. So they're only worth that much because there's some sucker out there that's going to buy them. So the hell with them. Yeah, I think our big idea is screw you person who has all the money in the world to spend on expensive things, but also screw you for pricing other people out they could actually enjoy. Yeah, that's a very good point. And that's a, that's a thing with the concerts and I think shoes in general. I think there's probably some asset out there that has a pair of shoes sitting in its closet that are worth thousands of dollars just as a status symbol when there could be some kid who really needs those to, uh, you know, perform really well in high school to get a scholarship somewhere. You know, it's, I feel like people like that, they're going to pay that kind of money. I think most of them probably aren't hardcore fans of whatever the product is or service. And I feel like they, they kind of deserve it. I'm going to guess those are different shoes. I'm, I'm going to guess that the shoes in the closet and, and the ones that would get him a scholarship are different shoes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know shoes that well, but I feel like I'm sure there's great pairs of shoes sitting in people's closets waiting to be resold for a high amount of money that could otherwise be used for good purpose for somebody else. I'm not sure you totally got what in their defense was. This feels like <laughs> oh, I'm not defending. the exact opposite of what we're going Oh, for. no, I said the hell with him. After that, after that, there's no defense. <laughs> I'm going to defend Michael on this, actually, in, in my defense of Michael's defense. Here's where Michael went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a very famous case about a pair of shoes that were reworn uh, by someone else, and it did help their basketball career. And it was called Like Mike, starring Will Bow <laughs> And it's a beloved film. All right. <laughs> AMC classic right there. All right. So we did the history. We did where it went wrong. And we did in their defense. I think we did it, guys. I think we fully covered sneakers. That's it. That's everything about shoes, guys. If, if you learn anything about, about shoes, did not happen. Everything was right here. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, stilettos. <laughs> Michael, Josh Gottelman, thank you both so much for being here. This was absolutely fantastic. Josh, I know you recorded a special recently, as you mentioned here. I saw you posting about it and I thought, okay, well, I'm not in New York, so I can't go. But is that coming out? Or was this in Massachusetts? This was in New York. TBD on the release, but hopefully it won't be too long and hopefully it'll be somewhere great where people can see it. It's it's uh there's not much I can say right now though. Of course. There. Yeah. And so we can very too. it'll be great. Yeah. We know that. It'll just it'll just be very funny. Thank you. Yeah, we're very much looking forward to it. Also, check out Josh's podcast, Make My Day. And I highly recommend Dancing on a Weeknight and Nice Try. The, those are respectively the the uh CD and the book. So go just look, just look up Josh Gondelman. If his name is on something, go buy it. They're all fantastic. So Josh, Michael, thank you for being here. Guys, thank you for listening. We're gonna be back next week. We'll hope you'll join us then. If you like this, please uh subscribe, give it five stars. It helps out so much. And we also have our Patreon down in the show notes. So go click on that. And it's five bucks and help us keep the show running. It's a great cause, which is, well, this, this show, it's an okay cause, but you know what, guys? We need it. Help us. It's a fine cause. That's it for us. When I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.